Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a special episode of New Scientist Weekly, recorded from the wildest place in England. I'm Rowan Hooper. Now you probably know that rewilding, or wilding, is what people call the process to restore nature and to repair our damaged ecosystems. So on this special episode of the show, and you can hear the dawn chorus in the background here, I've come to the Nep Estate in Sussex. It's about an hour south of London in the UK. It's a really magical place. It's like stepping into Narnia here. I think it's possibly the wildest place in England. And here's one reason why. Uh, And you'll have to forgive the David Attenborough-style whispering on this clip because I didn't want to disturb the beavers that have been reintroduced here. It's four in the morning. I've woken up in the beaver enclosure and I can see one swimming around in the pond by the lodge. It's absolutely incredible to see beavers here in the UK and to see how they transform the ecosystem around them. We'll find out more about beavers in a bit, but my reason for coming to NEP was to talk with Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell. They own the land here, there's a lot of it. It's a 1,400 hectare estate. The land used to be exhausted and impoverished after being intensively farmed for decades. But over the last 20 years, Isabella and Charlie have been rewilding it and they've written a guide for others who want to follow their lead. The book is called The Book of Wilding and I sat down with them at NET to talk about the project. Izzy, Charlie, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast and thanks for letting me stay in the beaver pen last (laughs) night. It was fantastic. Welcome to the podcast. Look, you've got this new book out which we want to talk about but for people who might not know, can you give us a a potted history of, of NEP? And the project. It all started when our agricultural enterprise started to feel very scary. And uh, we're on grade three, grade four agricultural land. And we were wondering what the future held for us. And we were into dairying and a mixed arable cropping with a bit of beef and a bit of sheep. And 
it came up with this idea that actually that wasn't our future. This land was too tough. Two small little fields, 10-acre fields. What could we do differently? And literally, you were casting around for what you could do differently. And where did the rewilding idea come from? Was that you, Izzy? No, it was Charlie. I think it was Charlie who kind of saw the writing on the wall and made the big decision to stop farming. And it just coincided with the moment when we were introduced to amazing um, man, Franz Vera, and, you know, this idea of how free-roaming animals would have been a huge influence on the landscapes of our past in Europe and that we'd forgotten how they reacted with the landscape, how they would have created habitats. So I think Charlie, you know, was really hunting around for some purpose for the estate. You know, how could we work with the land rather than battling against it all the time? And what if we did do an experiment like they were beginning to do in Europe of introducing free-roaming animals, creating habitat, and then just seeing what happened? Mm. Could we create some biodiversity here? Could we return it to nature? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very obvious as soon as you come here that this is teeming with life. But um, what was it like before? And have you got a measure of the change, you know, in the 20-odd years since, since you started the project? So we got it completely wrong at the very early stages in terms of how we set up uh, the monitoring and how we were then going to record the change. But, but I think, you know, it's, it's, we still have been able to... We learned, you know, all the time. Every year we, we were continuing to monitor and survey and that's got more rigorous all the time. One thing we didn't do at the very beginning as well was soil. And we now understand that that is one of the most important things that there is. And we just had some very exciting findings from agricarbon, haven't we? Do you want to say about that? So we, we had some land that actually my grandparents had bought because they were wanting to connect our land with another bit of land. It was about three fields. So we knew the history of this land, and the land was then carried on being farmed by my uncle for a while. So we used that as our base soil work. And we then compared that with the land that's in the rewilding project. And it's come up with an astonishing result. I mean, we're talking about the same sorts of carbon sequestration as a broadleaf plantation in the same time frame. So we're talking about about four tons, four and a half tons of CO2 equivalents per hectare per year has been stored just in these soils. And then on top of that, we've got another 3.7 million cubic meters of above ground vegetation growth. And then we've got all the roots. And what we're now looking at with my daughter, uh, our daughter, Nancy, is looking at roots and above ground, how much carbon has been sequestered in six different species in this scrubland. So it's going to have to be a, a groundbreaking and really interesting stuff, this, because if you can get that sort of sequestration in your soil, plus the above ground and below ground biomass also storing carbon, and you've got the huge uplift in biodiversity, that's got to be a, a game changer for how we're going to look and look after large parts of our planet, I think. Yeah, yeah. But so this is this increase in sequestration has come about on its own, as it were. You didn't you haven't sort of applied a mi- microbial rewilding, which some people are talking about. I this think, is just I think this is so interesting because what, so what we've got is we've got free roaming animals. And somehow, and we've built flux towers, Exeter University has built flux towers, so we, we're going to know how much, how much greenhouse gases are being emitted from this landscape in a year or two's time. You can hear the stork cla- bill clattering. You've got, so you've got this, this extraordinary amount of carbon being sequestered in a free-roaming cattle, 
horse, deer, pig landscape. And what's happening there? I mean, I'm, I'm wondering, and I've been sort of toying this idea with Izzy, is it something to do with, in the winter, these animals, free-roaming animals, outdoors all year round, no supplementary feeding, are these animals actually, by treading in the surface of the landscape, actually pumping material into that, certainly that top layer, and then the recovering soils underneath it, which now have been left alone without chemicals for 20 years, that biota is then ripping this material down in. But it's also, what's interesting, it's actually going to depth. Mm. And this is, we're talking about clay here. We're talking about 320 metres of clay cap. And we've done this test with agricarbon going down, this is a NERF-funded project, going down um, a metre with four different soil, soil tests at that depth. And we're seeing this, this build-up of carbon and uh, organic matter actually going down into this depth of this dreadful clay. And that was, that's really surprising. Because, you, you know, clay, you know, you, you expect a bit of organic matter to build up in the surface, but to actually have it going down into depth, that's really interesting. Wow. Um, it reminds me, people say the mammoth used to do that, didn't they? Like help um, with carbon storage in the soils by impacting the, the tundra and the soils. So it's really interesting you're getting that effect with the the large mammals you've got here roaming and, around. And well, could... this is only supposition. I mean, I have no, no idea, no, you know, sure. it's just me thinking. Yeah. But... And, and there could obviously be any number of different things that we, we just don't know about yet. I mean, mm. we're just beginning to understand the effect of animal gut biota in their dung and how that affects soil biota. So, you know, bacteria in the animal's guts could actually be stimulating greater activity in the soil. We, we just don't know. Yeah. And, and the mycorrhizal network, of course, as well. If that can rebound after being fertiliser-free, basically, and, and, and being able to recover. And, and we know that's happening. I mean, you know, we've, we've got our orchids popping up in the middle of fields. You know, we've got fungi. No one's really looked at the mycorrhizal you know, networks, have they? I mean, you know, we, it's such a complicated universe that even beginning to name all the different mycorrhizae is going yeah. to take decades. Yeah. OK, let's talk about the book you know what what's the drive behind it well i think we felt that wilding the the book about our our story here and how we how this land has recovered over 20 years has been incredibly galvanizing i think um it's such a story of hope and our mailbag has been astonishing people wanting to do something coming here and feeling inspired you know if nature can bounce back on really depleted agricultural land it can come back anywhere so how can you get it to happen in smaller spaces or in really tricky tricky patches so this book really is for everyone um it 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 takes the premise i think that rewilding is on a spectrum so you have the wilderness end with Yellowstone National Park, that kind of thing at one end. You've got NEP and other nature reserves somewhere in the middle, um, rewilding projects in Europe in the middle. But as the smaller you go, say you're trying to rewild a farm with 100, 100 hectares, you may have to start considering, well, maybe I can't have animals in there all year round or can't have such a big suite of animals, so you've got to think differently. The smaller you get, the more management you need to do but it's still thinking with a rewilding mindset how to get natural processes happening, how to get dynamism into your, your piece of land. And then how do you refer that to, to a garden or even a window box? So a lot of it is about um, natural processes, mimicking the animals. You know, if you're in a garden, thinking like a beaver, 
creating your, your, your garden pond as a beaver would, um, puddling around the edges as a water buffalo might. But it's also about thinking of connectivity. How can I kind of really get even greater effect from what I'm doing by connecting with my neighbours, perhaps influencing the local council to, to treat their, their verges less like billiard tables mm. and more like wildflower meadows? All of this is going to help connect this web of life that we need to, to creep back into our landscapes and take over. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, sometimes I, I've heard when I said I was coming here, a couple of people actually a little bit wrinkled their nose and sort of, oh, that, that, that posh couple with a massive estate, it's all very well for them. But I think it has had this ripple effect out um, to councils trying not to destroy the verges and and people in their back gardens just doing a small you know no mow may and things like that and I think this book is as you say a manual for people at all levels or, or everyone on the spectrum well I think that's that's the value this is a flagship project that obviously not everyone can do something like this but we can all do something Absolutely. And, um, you know, we are now a biodiversity hotspot. We're not suggesting that the whole of Britain should, should become a NEP. But what we're saying is that we need to connect the hotspots of life together. And, you know, time is of the essence here. You know, we are in a climate crisis, a biodiversity crisis. We can't forget that. Mm. We all of us have a part to play. And as soon as you do something, it's incredibly empowering and freeing. And that's what's really exciting about it, is, is this, this feeling that there is a literally grassroots movement. I think, just to add to that, I mean, one, of, one of the things that we do have to do, and we're working on a project up in Lincolnshire on a 1,600-acre farm, 93% of it ploughed, 2% grassland, 2, 2% woodland, and 3% sort of roos and, and hedgerows, that sort of thing. Mm. And that landscape used to be in cattle country. It used to be 100 fields in 1900. It's now down to 30 fields. And what we're experimenting with government in one of their programs is looking at how we're going to bring back nature to that land and who's going to pay for it. And the payments, the sale of ecosystem services, the natural capital sales, is how we are trying to make that work. And then long term for that land, it would be tourism. So you make the changes using the sale of natural capital and then you uh, bring in your tourists to to look at the wonders of what you've created. And I think we've got to come up with solutions. And, you know, that's that's still a big site. But that's got to be able to work on a 200-acre site or or 400-acre site or a 150-acre site. We've got to work out that government ain't going to be the solution for all of this change. We're looking at a, a 6.1 billion shortfall, uh, a funding gap between what the government is sort of offering at 2.7 billion. And we've got this 6.1 billion we've got to find from somewhere. And it's not going to come from philanthropy. It's not going to come from government. Where's it going to come from? This, this is just to halt biodiversity loss. And that's just to halt the, the loss mm-hmm. of biodiversity. So the sort of scale of what we're needing to do and how we're going to come up with the solutions for that is the really interesting next step. And that's what we're working with government to do and, and a lot of other people. Mm. Well, I mean, this what we need are positive tipping points and getting a, enough people behind this, this whole movement that in the end government has to act on a bigger scale and, and faster around the world. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere, haven't you? 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, this started as a project for, to get you out of jail, effectively, <laughs> right? But then it's transformed into this flagship project um, that's inspiring you know other projects across the world across Britain but also what you know across the world and you have a mission now uh, when did it sort of change from being a, a personal project to one that's much bigger much bigger than you than you thought at the first well for me it was when we got the kickback we had all these people saying it was immoral it was wrong it was the wrong thing to do and all that kickback, and you're thinking, actually, these are people that actually haven't really thought through their arguments. They don't really know much, and we were learning a lot. And that was the moment you think, well, you know, we just got to kick on through this because this is nonsense. People are, are arguing from a very weak point because they're arguing about things they don't really understand. Nor did we understand it, but we were going, well, you know, we've got to, we've got to crack on and do this because. Who else is going to do it? So I think that, for me, it was the driver was, you know, okay, you've got a lot of people saying you're wrong and immoral and hopeless and, you know, and you're going, well, actually, you're not coming from where, you know, where I was at the time. And we've got a, we, you know, we've got a bit of a crusade here. We've got to try to persuade people and, and bring people along with, the, with us on this journey. And that's, you know, an interesting thing to do. And I think it has been really astonishing. I mean, I think in the early days we... You know, there were, as Charlie says, you know, there were a lot of naysayers. And I think, you know, people understandably sometimes are uncomfortable with change and you see a landscape changing quite fast in an early days of a rewilding project. But then I think, you know, the fears begin to subside and when, you know, you, you have nightingales and turtle doves coming back and you suddenly have the biggest population of purple emperor butterflies in Britain... Mm. I think then people begin to think, well, actually, there's something going on here that's quite interesting. And we had a letter from a woman in the very early days who, who wrote and said, you know, Charlie's grandparents would be turning in their graves. We've turned something beautiful into an abomination. And she wrote again a couple of years ago and apologised and said, you know, I got it wrong. I, I, I shouldn't have had such a knee-jerk reaction I walk net every week. I love it. I now realise it is still beautiful, but it's just beautiful in a different way. So I think, you know, a lot of it is about changing people's aesthetic. You know, we all are tied to landscapes. We've grown, we've been educated to to think of our green and pleasant land, mm. and they're actually dysfunctional. Yeah. And so it's it's learning why why those landscapes aren't working for us anymore, and they're not secure, and they're not 
they're not going to contain our future prosperity. And that, that is, is very freeing, but it's, 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 it's quite a leap to make. I mean, it's a leap we had to make. Um, uh, but once you do, I think the potential for what can happen in our, our landscape is enormous. I mean, you, you live here, so you know the whole place very well. What's your, what's your favourite part of the estate at the moment to hang out in? Well, this time of year, it's got to be listening to a turtle dove turring on a twig next door to a stork nest, which is bill clattering, <laughs> I guess. But so it, you, that, you change, that changes through the seasons. Okay. <laughs> I think, I think where, where, where you've just spent the night, I think, I think the beaver pen is just magical. What those two creatures have done in a, in a year turned this, this piece of land that was you know, really insignificant with a, with a tiny little trickle of a stream through a ditch into a watery kingdom. It, it's, it's magical. What I've been kind of pondering uh, overnight there is how they conceive of what their plan, these beavers. You know, they come to a, like you say, a, a piece of land with a little stream in it and they, th- they know how to engineer it and they have that in their heads. And that's an incredibly advanced behaviour, so sophisticated. So that's what has given me, you know, profound respect for, for these animals. To see what they've done here is just really amazing. Yeah. Now, as you heard earlier, I spent the night wild camping in a bivvy bag in the beaver pen. Here's another clip. So we're in the beaver enclosure. It's just past eight o'clock. And we're just by the lodge. It's about two and a half, three metres tall lodge that the beavers have built in this whole pond, flooded out area. Oh, and a beaver's just come out. Whoa. <laughs> I think I startled it then. It slapped, the ta- it slapped its tail on the water and dived down. I think I've upset it. It's really incredible what the beavers have done here. Just transformed this entire enclosure. It's all flooded. And so much life here now has returned to this little part. Right, I'm going to be quiet and see if I can, uh, see if the beaver will come back. Right, the beaver's come back. There it is. It's not too upset with us. Just swimming about in the pool. So we've only seen one so far. No one knows if there's any kits in the lodge or not. Don't know if they've bred. Now it's just dived down to go back inside the lodge, I think. Now beavers are here at NEP, largely down to the persistence of a rewilding specialist called Derek Gow. Beavers had been absent for the UK for at least 200 years, and Derek recognised the profound impact, the beneficial impact, they can have on the wider ecosystem. So for years now, he's been campaigning to bring them back. In fact, he wrote a book about this called Bringing Back the Beaver. Uh, He calls them water gardeners, which is a beautiful way to put it. And by good fortune, Derek Gow happened to be at NEP when I was there. So I asked him to explain just why beavers are so important. So beavers are important because quite simply, by holding water for their own purposes on the surface of the land, they create environments that that attract all sorts of other life. They are a very well-studied species in both um, North America and throughout their wide Eurasian range, 
And we know that when beavers build dams and impoundments that, you know, the frog numbers rise by, by you know, 80% in terms of biomass, that the same happens with fish and water beetles and dragonflies. And all these species are the crucial ingredients of life. So as the food source resources rise, and as the habitat becomes increasingly more complex, reed beds, small pools, water flowing between them, then a whole guild of other people, species come back as well. And some of those creatures are things that you know, are obvious. So, you know, the, frog, the, the otters come to, to hunt the frogs and the fish, and so do the herons. But for other things that, that we have a very clear idea of in our heads, things like redback shrikes, you know, these are birds that we think of as being heathland birds. You know, that's where they finished in Britain. But in Franconia, these birds, have, which have found the beaver-generated wetlands, have found in them this great store of, of food and also of nesting habitat, dead, dying willow. So it doesn't really matter where you look in nature. If you have beavers, you have a much greater array of life in the environments that they create um, you know, as a result. Because I was thinking of beavers are a bit like they send up a bat signal to all other life forms that then kind of <laughs> zoom in. Because people think, oh, well, how, do, how do all the organisms that aren't there when it's a, an impoverished landscape know to come back? And, you know, they just create something and, and, then, and then things come back. You know, the more, the more you have to do with nature, if you view your understanding of it in, in a sense that is relatively humble, the more you begin to, to see that, that all is interconnected. And how do we know? Well, you know, it could be, you know, if you're looking at something like storks, for example, it could be the bill clattering, you know, rising from in crescendo, you know, above their nests, you know, up into the sky, where, where other members of their same species can hear it at great distance. But it's almost certainly, it's, it's the assembly of birds swinging in. It's the singing from, from you know, multifold species in, in the, you know, the willow scrub and the environments that surround the beaver dams. It's the quacking of the ducks. It might even be, you know, the purring of dragonflies' wings mm. that tells things that here is opportunity. But what we know is that they can definitely find it. So there, there must be mechanisms that are attracting, you know, life to the areas that, where they can prosper. And obviously you're, you've been instrumental in bringing beavers back to the UK. What's next first for this project here at NEP, but then for you more generally? Well, what's next has got to be the release of these animals out into the wider landscape. I mean, we exist at a time of terrible danger where, you know, most of our river corridors are polluted, full of disease. They're no longer watercourses, they're, they're toxic drains. And, you know, we know this is you know, terrible for wildlife, but also increasingly terrible for ourselves. So when you see, you know, the political attention that's now being, you know, uh, levied with regard to, to, to the fact that you can't swim in the rivers anymore because they're just so puerile, then people are beginning to realise that something has to happen. And what beavers do is they, you know, by creating dams and impoundments, the feeder streams or ditch systems that feed the rivers, is they, they, they reinstall natural filters. You know, you have well-understood um, studies which show that they can catch 80% of the toxic silts leaching from the farmland before they go into the rivers and hold them in their, their impoundments. And that when this happens, you know, the, the, those rich silts then enable the vascular plants to reform. Basically, they, they create sponges, they create filters, uh, and they do it sustainably. So what's next has to be 
the release of beavers in numbers. We are not a competent people when it comes to acting quickly on behalf of nature, but we should be. We know everything we need to know about them now in Britain, and we should just be releasing them out into every river system where we can, taking the surplus animals from the Tay in Scotland, not shooting another single one, and, and, and using these to the great benefit of nature, but ultimately to the great benefit of ourselves. After that, when the beavers are re-established and, and we have this new guild of habitats reforming everywhere they can, then, you know, we can start to think about other creatures um, that should be here that we've extirpated in the past. And one of the ones we're working on at the moment is, is the wildcat. I mean, wildcats, you know, their original British name was the woodcat. They, again, are a species which is not of mountain and moor. Mm. They are a deciduous woodland creature. We killed them all in the Middle Ages. They're now on the brink of extinction in Scotland. Why could we not bring this relatively small predator back into the wetlands that the breavers create to hunt the frogs and the toads and, and the that exist there in, in, in great plenty. So it's a case of getting the canvas right. And when the canvas is right, then other tiny parts of, of, of the miraculous vision that could be will either find it themselves or we can assist them to make that journey. What's your message to farmers who might be worried resisting the introduction of beavers more broadly? My message to farmers is most are not. What what you're seeing is a, you know, politically and in the press is a, is a hardcore reaction from a bunch of extremists who care not about the future of this earth and who care not particularly about the future of most of the people that inhabit it. So I don't think that, you know, organisations like the National Farmers Union are particularly representative of farmers. What I'd say to you is that really there's no need to worry that every management solution that you can apply to this creature is well understood, both in a North American context in the Eurasian context, there's nothing more we need to learn. We can go through with the, you know, the restoration of beavers with great confidence and, and that you know, what you can do you know, with your own land is, is by enabling sensibly the return of this creature is that in your lifetime you, see, you can start a process that means farming's viable and, and indeed they may bring things to farming as climate warms like you know additional water being held in the farm or rising groundwater levels so that your crops just don't desiccate in hot summers but that you can actually help to reform landscapes which are still which remain forever good for farming but are also good for nature as well so i don't know if you can hear that sort of tapping noise, chopping noise. I think it's a beaver having a go at a, a tree in its pond over there. If you can hear it over the sound of the dawn chorus. Now, I was slightly apprehensive about sleeping in the open in the beaver enclosure. Uh, you know, their teeth grow <laughs> a metre a year, apparently. So I recruited a friend to come with me. Andy Hector, who's Professor of Ecology at the University of Oxford. It just makes you realise, really, coming and looking at a beaver pond like this and the huge lodge and the dam, just how depauperate Britain is, how we've got rid of such a lot of our large wildlife and what an impact that then has on the, on the whole uh, countryside and our ecosystems and just a lot of what potential there is to what we can do if we put these animals back. And what's the project in Wales doing? So I'm, I'm um, involved in the Leverhulme Centre for Nature Recovery, uh, which is doing some of its own rewilding work, but also trying to bring together projects throughout the UK. And um, uh, one of those is uh, the Carbon Community Project in Llandovery in Wales, 
where they've done tree replanting, but they're also combining that with adding uh, basalt dust, rock dust, to the soil to try and chemically lock up carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, but they've got a whole host of interesting other treatments there as well, trying to add in uh, shovelfuls of soil from, from old growth forest to sort of introduce the microbiome and see if that speeds the growth of the newly planted trees. And it'll be interesting to see then not just what impacts that has on sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but how biodiversity can recover in those landscapes as well. I'm back in London now. I'm very much missing the wonder of the Nep estate. Fortunately, there's a way to experience it without going there on Wilding Radio. And that's what you can hear now. This is a live stream of audio from Nep. And you can choose the proportion of the audio feed that comes from the air and that that comes from underwater with hydrophones. So just type in wilding.radio in your browser and you'll find it. The project's been set up by soundscape ecologist Alice Eldridge of the University of Sussex. One of the aims really is to counter the shifting baseline syndrome. That's the, the awful way that we get used to living in an impoverished ecosystem. And she wants to show you know, what should be around us, make these rewilded ecosystems accessible to more people. And as Alice says, she hopes it might help generate hope and kindle a connection to nature. So let's end with that sound. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you for listening to this special episode from New Scientist Podcasts. Do check out The Book of Wilding by Isabella Tree and Charlie Burrell and Alice's Wilding Radio. And do please press the button to subscribe to New Scientist Podcasts. Bye for now. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.